0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with writer Caroline Paul about her death-defined adventures and how girls must learn the difference between fear and exhilaration. When you face a situation, you can choose. Do you want to listen overwhelmingly to your fear or do you want to try to access your bravery?
1: Here's Debbie Millman. If there is a superhero of girl power, you need look no further than Caroline Paul. She's fought fires, weathered blizzards on high peaks, and piloted experimental planes. She is a daredevil adventurer at heart and a strong believer that girls can and should do it all. When Caroline Paul is not off scaling cliffs and soaring the skies, she can be found writing. Her latest book, The Gutsy Girl, Escapades for Your Life of Epic Adventure, is a rallying cry for girl power. It's part memoir, part outdoor guide. Today, I'm going to talk to her about her adventures and her daring and fascinating life. Caroline Paul, welcome back to Design Matters.
0: Thank you, Debbie. That was a very nice introduction.
1: Well, first, I'd like to say a hearty congratulations. The first week of publication of The Gutsy Girl, you made the New York Times bestseller list, and you were there again last Sunday. How are you feeling?
0: Yeah, that was great. I think it resonates is all.
1: Despite the introduction I just read about your many heroics, You reveal in The Gutsy Girl that you were a shy and fearful kid. Caroline, I find this so hard to believe. You are such a warrior now. Why do you think you were so fearful growing up?
0: Because I was, actually. (laughs) And here's the thing. I have an identical twin. Yes, And she, in fact, is very social and outgoing. And when we were kids, she was highly interactive in the world. And every photograph, the way you can tell us apart, is that she has her mouth open and her hands flung wide, and I am simply staring
1: catatonically at the (laughs) camera. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to need to see one of those pictures. You've written how in an effort to be less fearful, you bike down a steep country road and hit a car. You sledded down an icy hill and hit a tree. How did you motivate yourself to keep trying things despite these physical mishaps? It's fun. It's that simple. It is
0: fun to do outdoor things. There's an exhilaration. There's an anticipation. And that outweighed, you know, any fear or this. And we were also wasn't emphasized that we would get hurt. It wasn't this big emphasis. The emphasis was more
1: on the fact that it was fun. When you were 13, you read about a strange boat race. The boats were elaborate affairs, paddle wheels, schooners, rowboats, with one thing in common. They were kept afloat by milk cartons. This essentially changed your life. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I read National Geographic for the adventures and like most families back then, my parents kept them lined up on the shelves. So they were sort of part decorative, part practical. And I read about this boat race, and I wanted to build a ship, and I wanted it to be a pirate ship <laughs> with a plank
1: <laughs> and, so and a prow. so it would be kept afloat by milk cartons. So how many milk cartons did you end up needing to collect in order to make this boat of yours?
0: I collected 167
1: milk cartons. And this story is the centerpiece of the first chapter of The Gutsy Girl. And I think in an effort to regale the story in its proper context, let's talk about some of your family for a moment. Um, In Gutsy Girl, you describe your dad in the following way. My dad wasn't handy. He liked acupuncture before it became an accepted medical procedure. He believed in psychics. He thought that talking to animals was possible if you put your mind to it. My dad himself was not weird. He was a banker who wore ties and shiny leather shoes to work and had one martini when he came home. So, Caroline, he helped you build the boat.
0: So I I didn't know how to build anything, but I figured my dad did. turned out he didn't really either. So what ended up uh, happening was that we built something that we ended up calling a raft, but i think it was really a square. <laughs> and it was simply two pieces of plywood, the milk cartons taped and garbage bagged in between to keep them uh, you know, waterproof and then the whole thing nailed together. It was the most simple, it basically was a bed. <laughs>
1: Your twin sister was also part of the adventure. You didn't love being a twin at the time, but it contributed to your pirate ship bravado in that it would help to distinguish yourself from your sister. And you write, Once the boat was built, I wouldn't merely be part of the girls. I would be a captain of a square made of milk cartons. Try to top that world. (laughs) How did it all work out,
0: Caroline? We had a river in our town called the Housatonic River, and for people who might be high-caliber kayakers, they know that actually some pretty gnarly races are held on that river, but we didn't know that, and neither did my parents. They're actually good parents, but they didn't realize that. And we simply set sail with a flag that said the HMS homogenized and two paddles, and uh, it's a short story and the long story. It's the same story. We broke up in the first rapid.
1: How did it feel to have it destroyed so early on in the journey?
0: It took a while to get over the sadness that we had basically sunk. But uh, I think I became proud, much prouder after, because it's a story actually that we still tell, all of us as adults. And frankly, at the time, it was a big adventure.
1: What inspired you to write The Gutsy Girl in the first place?
0: Well, there were some specific instances. Uh, one in particular was that a couple of years ago, a friend of mine lamented to me that her daughter was a real scaredy cat. And I had noticed that my peers were often talking about how scared they were about things. And uh, this shocked me because I felt like being scared was not necessarily an emotion you should pay a lot of attention to all the time. And it seemed like women did. So when this uh, friend of mine said that her young girl was a scaredy cat, I began to notice and I looked and and indeed she was anxious about things. But what I noticed more was that her parents were anxious and that a lot of the things that they said to her, especially when she was outside, began with be careful, don't do that, watch out. And uh, I began to realize that
1: we are very much brought up to be fearful as girls. In a New York Times op-ed piece titled Why Do We Teach Girls It Is Cute to Be Scared, you write that you were one of the first women in the San Francisco Fire Department, and for more than a dozen years you worked on a busy rig in a tough neighborhood where rundown houses caught fire easily and gangs fought with machetes and twenty-twos. You've pulled a bloated body from the bay, performed CPR on a baby, and crawled down countless smoky hallways. You did all this, but you also regularly had your courage doubted. You never heard your male colleagues ask this. Apparently, fear is expected of women. And I couldn't help but think about why that is the case.
0: Yeah, when this happened, this was really surprising to me because when I became a firefighter, I knew that the biggest thing people were concerned about was whether women were strong enough to do this job. And it was a, it's a very physical job. But what really surprised me was that people questioned my bravery. And I didn't understand where this could come from because that has nothing to do with physicality. And um, well, the other thing that happened was is that I applied for one of the rigs that went to the most fires in the city. And I remember when I got the position, people were surprised that I even wanted it. And I thought, why are you surprised that a woman wants to have an adventurous life?
1: You go on to write, this fear conditioning begins early. Many studies have shown that physical activity, sports, hiking, playing outdoors, is tied to girls' self-esteem. And yet girls are often warned away from doing anything that involves a hint of risk. And according to a study in the Journal of Pediatric Psychology, parents are four times more likely to tell girls than boys to be careful.
0: Yeah, but there's a study that I looked at that showed that moms and dads cautioned their girls much more than their boys. So the study, ironically, was on about a fire pole in a playground The boys, on the other hand, they encouraged. They encouraged to do the fire pole even if they had trepidations about it. And then with the girls, if the girls decided to do the fire pole anyway, the parents were much more likely to assist them. With the boys, they did not assist them. They encouraged them to do it on their own. And so what is this saying to girls and boys about girls? It's basically saying that girls aren't that able – And they're more fragile. And boys are being
1: told very early that they can do it on their own and they should try. You talk about how many situations are considered too scary when, in fact, you simply describe them as exhilarating and unknown. Why do you think we confuse the scary with the exhilarating and unknown? Well, girls
0: and women often confuse it because they're not really conversant with the nuance of these emotions because physically fear and excitement feel very similar. There's the increased heart rate, you know, there's the little bit of sweat. The difference between exhilaration and fear is hard to understand unless you're really you've practiced it. And so it seems like a lot of girls will be at the top of a hill on their bike and feel this feeling and they'll immediately call it fear. But I think often it's exhilaration, and yet they choose it to be fear and decide, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. When you face a situation, you can choose. Do you want to listen overwhelmingly to your fear or do you want to try to access your bravery?
1: In an interview in New York Magazine, you state, it doesn't make sense that we coddle our girls like we do. It's this weird, vicious circle where as adults we see women being fearful because we've been taught that, so we assume there's something inherent. But in fact, bravery is not a gendered trait. That astounded me. Yet we expect it to be a gendered trait in all the fairy tales. But who is the bravest of us all?
0: Think about it for a sec it's not the Navy SEAL, it's not the firefighter, it's the mother. The mother will step in front of a charging pit bull. She will lift a VW bug off her kids. We expect that from the mother. So why do we not expect bravery in women and girls? And I'm not saying that fear is not, you should just abolish fear. I'm just saying it's really important that we put it in its place. So, I'm a paraglider. And paragliding is one of those sports, uh, as a simple way of explaining it, it's kind of like flying under a bedsheet. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you basically just walk towards a cliff and jump off and you're flying. On launch, I would stand on launch, and it's usually really uh, quite steep, and you're looking down hundreds of feet, and up in the air you're looking at the big blue sky. And, of course, I feel fear. But I'm also feeling all these other emotions. And it's then that it's really important to take everything that you're feeling and look at it and then put it in its order. And being fearful was a good instinctive reaction. But honestly, it didn't really make sense because I was a very good paraglider. I'd done it a lot. I had already assessed the wind conditions. And so what I would do is take a
1: deep breath, take a couple steps. And then I was flying. It takes a lot of faith, though, to take that step off of solid ground. Having done this once and being so terrified that I actually nearly had to be pushed off the cliff because I was so afraid to step off the cliff and into the wind. Um, Once you do it, it is exhilarating. And then it doesn't feel as hard, which I think is interesting about the notion of doing something over and over again. But it does take some faith in yourself to be able to do it the first time. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah. And I want to say, too, that when I talk about gutsiness or bravery, we're talking – I'm using examples that are pretty extreme, like paragliding, being a firefighter. But these are attributes that we need in everyday life. So gutsiness is something that you need to use when you walk into work or you need to speak to your best friend. So, you know, if we use really extreme situations, everybody's got a reason why they're not gonna take those three steps. But I use, the reason I use an Outdoor Adventure in the book is because it's such a great training ground to teach bravery. Yes, you need faith when you go paragliding, but I'm not trying to tell people to go paragliding.
1: I'm trying to tell people to be brave in if their life. But you can inspire them to do it as well, I think those types of experiences build an enormous foundation of belief in one's abilities. I was really intrigued by how you talk about and describe managing your fear, and this was best articulated in your Climb Up the Golden Gate Bridge You write, I did what I usually do when I feel afraid. I called all my feelings to attention like a drill sergeant at boot camp. I marched exhilaration at doing something so daring out front. I placed wonder at the view right behind. I told so fun to have an adventure to get in line to. Finally, I allowed fear to tag along. And is that something you had to train yourself to do?
0: Oh yeah, it's it's definitely something that I've trained myself to do. By the way, um this so this is a story about climbing the Golden Gate Bridge. At night. At night illegally. <laughs> it was With five four of your us. friends yeah. <laughs> climbed up the cable to the top, which is seven hundred and forty six feet above the water, which is basically climbing like climbing on the outside of a skyscraper. And please don't do it because it's not allowed. <laughs> it's illegal. <laughs> I need
1: to say that before anything. You Made it to the top, and then one of your friends needed to go further to another layer of the bridge that you hadn't anticipated even considering climbing. She does that, stands up, and woohoos. You're inspired to then do the same thing. You don't stand up and do a woohoo, but you bask in the moment of being at the top. How do you? Know when not to do something you you decided at that moment not to stand up and woohoo. How do you make that decision about what to do and what not to do?
0: Well, it wasn't a decision actually. I mean, I really wanted to stand up and throw my hands up to the sky, but I was physically unable. I froze, and I have to say that I was ashamed about it. The reason I went up to the very tippy top i didn't want to. I was scared. But I thought, she's done it. I better do it. (laughs) Not always the best reason to do something. And when I got up there, I literally realized, you just can't do it. You're physically unable to straighten up right now. (laughs) It's probably best because I'm actually kind of accident prone. And that would have been the one time where uh, if I had
1: tripped and fallen, it would have been catastrophic. In Chapter 5, What Goes Up Might Come Down... You state that sometimes the word treacherous lacks the menace it should, and it sounds strangely like the word fun. (laughs) I don't understand the correlation, Caroline, but I'm going with it. What happened when you tried to climb Mount Denali, the tallest mountain in the Northern Hemisphere?
0: First of all, Denali is a very dangerous mountain. I mean, it's a mountain people climb on the way to Everest. It's known for its Um, Terrible blizzards that blow climbers off the mountain. Temperatures as low as negative 100. And it's basically um, a mountain that I knew that I did not have the skills to summit. But when my friend Eric, who was a park ranger there, said, would you like to join me at base camp, which was at a mere 8,000 feet, I, of course, said yes. And when we got there, it just so happened that Denali was experiencing a very balmy summer. So all of a sudden, this mountain that was so treacherous didn't seem treacherous at all. So we decided, uh, my friend Trish, who also wasn't a great mountaineer, Eric, and I decided we would ski up to 14,000.
1: What happens next?
0: Well, like anything um, where you (laughs) think it's going to go great because all of a sudden it's so warm, uh, it didn't go so great. Uh, We were skiing and there were tons of crevasses. And a crevasse is a split in the snow, And we were roped together because um, we knew there were crevasses. And often you could just cross them by skiing over them. But they're scary. You look down and they seem to go forever. Or you would divert and find a snow bridge. And the truth was we just got lazy. We had been skiing for hours. We were skiing up, which is a way that you can put something under the ski called a skin. And the ski pretty much sticks to the snow. It's a very fast way to travel. Uh, and uh, we were getting lazy and uh, we came to a crevasse and Eric was at the front of the line and he was the expert. And he said the memorable words, I think I'm going to jump it.
1: <laughs> and there he went. And it Over. seemed like
0: a good idea at the time, like they always do. And he uh, had a hundred pound sled that he was attached to. He took off his skis, threw them across, took a little bit of a running start took off, and then the lip gave way as he was pushing off, and he fell into the crevasse. And because we were roped together, uh, first Trish got pulled down, and then I got pulled down, and so now Eric's in the crevasse, and we're holding him. I was holding him using an ice axe.
1: And you didn't know at that point if he was even still alive. He wasn't saying anything. He didn't yell out. The sled had gone in after him, and, and we knew it must have hit him. And if, if he
0: was alive or not, we didn't know
1: then what happens
0: well then you do something you set up something uh called a leverage system in the snow and i was a firefighter and i knew how to set this up and i was also you know very physically fit and i knew how to there's a thing a lot of things i knew how to do but there was also um i didn't have experience and so uh basically i set up this leverage system uh and then it began to rain
1: which, which meant meant more melting right? yeah
0: yes Uh, So the upshot was I really was really concerned about Eric because uh, he could have be getting hypothermia. So I'm yelling for Trish to get herself out of the system and to come to me. And when she finally gets herself unclipped and stands up to come walking to me, she falls through. And it turns out that she doesn't fall all the way through, though. And uh, we realize that we're on a very thin layer of snow with this huge crevasse underneath us. Then we desperately are trying to pull Eric up and we're not making any headway because the snow is so mushy. And in the distance, we see people descending from the mountain. And Trish says, yay, look, people descending from, from the mountain. They're going to help us. And for me, this was... I know a lot of people will not understand this, but if you're an outdoors person, you will. This was kind of a nightmare that we couldn't get ourselves out of the pickle that we had gotten ourselves in and that we were going to have to need help.
1: Were you reluctant to ask? Were you relieved to see these other people descending the mountain?
0: You know, I was of two minds, of course. You know, I my one of my best friends was in the crevasse and he was not responding. And so this team of skiers comes and it was an amateur group of climbers led by two professional guides who were basically these two very stern-faced women who looked at us and were annoyed. <laughs> yes, because we had gotten ourselves in this situation we couldn't get ourselves out of.
1: Do you think you wouldn't have been able to get out or do you think that you eventually would have figured something out? You've been very resilient in all the stories. And I think he would have died. You do. Yeah. But he didn't. No. The two stern-faced women guides got you out.
0: They repelled down. I, I, it's a little unfair me. I just say that their, their 10 clients just held the rope, not even bothering to set up any anchor system in this terrible snow that was melting right and left.
1: She just, just knew what she was doing. Yeah, she's just a, she's just she's a, a badass. kick-ass mountaineer. <laughs> okay. And we were obvious yahoos. So she rescues Eric, and he is very injured. He yeah. had a concussion and needed, I think, 80 stitches. Mm-hmm. Broke his back um but he's recovered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about chapter 7. Whoops. Thin ice. <laughs> you decide you want to try out for an Olympics team. Yeah. <laughs> I have these
0: ideas that I can do these things. It's amazing.
1: I was hoping to be able to like make my high school glee club. <laughs> I had to try out a few times before I made it. But to that, that to me it. was courage. Everybody <laughs> had us an
0: Olympic dream though. I mean, I think I
1: no, no, never.
0: You. <laughs> yeah, you'd pick a sport that nobody else does.
1: Basically, at the time, uh, luge, which is a sledding-type sport. You describe it as being similar to sledding down a hill on a cafeteria tray. Exactly. <laughs> it was a, a very um, unknown
0: sport at the time. And uh, the only people on the Olympic team were from the town that had the only luge track in the country. In Lake Placid, right? Yeah, Lake Placid, yes.
1: Tell us the story of the luge, and please include how you got the nickname Crash.
0: It's a pretty short story. I sucked at it, but I was determined. I trained very hard, and unfortunately, there was this one curve that I could never quite master, and I would have these spectacular crashes, and therefore I earned the nickname Crash. Did you ever hurt yourself really badly?
1: I was sent to the hospital, but um, no, not badly enough to stop. You end up deciding not to become an Olympian, and you declare the following. Was this a failure? In a certain sense, yes. I didn't become an Olympic athlete, but I did become something else. I was now someone who had hobnobbed with athletes from around the world. I'd ricocheted down a luge track at high speeds— I had learned that by hanging on by my fingertips, no matter what paid off. I had improved bit by bit. I had qualified for the national team. I had been one of the first women in the world to throw myself onto a skeleton sled and shoot headfirst down its track. I had hired a lawyer, and he had written a scathing letter. I had stood up to a small-minded man and his small-minded institution in my own small but powerful way. Perhaps I even started the sled sliding toward a future where girls join skeleton teams. I followed a dream, and it had enriched my life. It hadn't turned out the way I thought I wanted it to, but it had turned out just the way it should. Caroline, why did you have to have a lawyer write a scathing letter? And how did that potentially change the way women are now part of the Olympics?
0: Well, when it became clear that I was maybe not going to be an Olympian in the luge, I simply searched for a more obscure sport, which happened to be practicing right nearby on the bobsled track, and that's a sport called skeleton. And while luge is something where you lie flat on your back, skeleton is a sport where you lie on your stomach, and the ice is two millimeters from your chin, and you're going down at high speeds. And no women did that sport. And so I thought... (laughs) well, that's perfect.
1: I could be the best at this sport. So I went and um, tried it and they were psyched to have me. You took to the ice really naturally for skeleton. You did it the first time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was very much a nascent sport at the time and they didn't have uniforms. We had, the losers, we had uniforms and helmets and, you know, fancy this and that. And the skeleton team, they used motorcycle helmets, jeans, and sneakers. Yeah, it was right it was right up my alley. Uh but but I uh so I wanted to join the team. It wasn't an Olympic sport yet, but he said, you know, it'll be an Olympic sport soon and that was good enough for me. I needed some time anyway. So but he said, You gotta go ask permission from the bobsled president because we're under the bobsled association. And by the way, he's kind of a drinker, so you should go in the afternoon. They'll be kind of loose. <laughs> so I went and I said, I'd like to be a member of the skeleton team. He said, No. I was kind of shocked, like, why? He said, because you're a girl. And I said, but why does that matter? He said, because girls aren't allowed. But why? He basically just said no. And I had never had somebody tell me to my face that I couldn't do something because I was a girl. I know people had thought it, but no one had said it. It was illegal, for one. And so I you know, tossed my hair, stood up and said, you'll be hearing from my lawyer I didn't have a lawyer, but I would find a lawyer. In fact, I did uh, have a lawyer write a letter. But by then I, I made the national team for luge. So I switched and concentrated on that. And, uh, but I was really disappointed not to be able to be part of this fledgling skeleton team. And in 2002, I turned on the TV to watch the Olympics. And in fact, what did I see but the first year of the Olympic women's skeleton team on the
1: television. And so I take a little bit of credit for that. Did you even think for a moment about going back, <laughs> no. joining the team? No. What made you decide to not join the national team, even though you had made it?
0: You know, I'd i been training in Europe, in the luge. And at the same time, I was in college and uh, learning a lot about the world and how big the world was. And I kind of thought, do I really want to just go up and down a track trying to shave off seconds off my time, that would be my life. It just didn't seem as exciting anymore. And so when the national team said, you're on the national team, I said no. And then I knew, of course, that my trajectory to being an Olympian was now done.
1: And you became a firefighter instead for quite some time. Yes. Yes. Your life partner, Wendy McNaughton, created all of the remarkable illustrations for Gutsy Girl. This is the second book you've collaborated on. What was this experience like? The first book was called Lost Cat, a true story of love, desperation, and GPS technology. And And there's a wonderful episode of Design Matters featuring both Caroline and Wendy talking about that book in detail. And that's a memoir. And that's
0: a memoir of both of us because we lived through that story together. I won't you know tell you what the story is but it's just a fun romp and uh so it's the book itself is sort of a conversation between wendy and i she's the illustrator and i'm the writer uh but it it goes hand in hand uh it was that was an unusual relationship between writer and illustrator not just because we sleep together but because uh usually what happens is a writer gives a book to an illustrator and then they illustrate and that was really how the gutsy girl was done because this was more, um, very much more my experience, and so Wendy illustrated it. But I gave her the book after it was done.
1: Does she have different notions of fear and courage than you do?
0: Yeah, she, she does not often like what I do. She admires it, but she doesn't quite understand it
1: sometimes. The the remarkable thing about this book, Caroline, in addition to being incredibly entertaining and incredibly educational, I learned so much about what is needed for adventure in addition to the spirit you bring to it. But it's so funny. This book is laugh-out-loud funny. In parts, it's hysterically funny. Did you intend for that? Were you writing with the sense that you wanted people to laugh? Or were you just regaling in the sort of hysteria that occurred in your life?
0: Well, I mean, some of the things are so dumb that they're just inherently <laughs> funny. And I realize that. But I also think that w- one of the great things about adventure is you cannot take yourself too seriously. I mean, you really can't because you're really at the whim of often Mother Nature And I think also showing that adventure is fun, is something to embrace, is important. And making it funny is part of that. And I'm glad that you found it funny and laughed.
1: You also say sometimes just knowing that you won't die is enough to gather the courage you need. That's a mantra for life, not just epic adventures. Would you agree? Well, yeah, it's funny. My friend of mine said, and I didn't realize I did this, but she said, you know what you
0: always do? You always ask me. What's the worst that could happen whenever we're doing something? And then when I say, oh, we could die, usually I point out to her that that's not true and that it's usually not that. And
1: so then that's good enough to go forward. Caroline, you write, when it comes to chocolate, we all know we want it. A cute kitten in our lap? Ditto. More attention from our BFF? Of course. But sometimes it can be hard to ask. We're afraid that our teammates, our friends, or that cool older kid will think we're needy, silly, or just plain dumb. But here's the truth. Your needs matter. Learn to ask for what you want. Caroline, how can we all get better at this? How can we get better at asking for what we want without feeling embarrassed or ashamed or scared?
0: Oh, well, this is one of the many exercises I have, because I have exercises in the book that are sort of practical camping type exercises, like find the North Star or get water from a tree. Or how to tell how much time is left before the sunset. Exactly. But I also include a lot of exercises that are meant to promote confidence. And this is a really important one, because girls do not learn to ask for what they want, whereas I think boys do learn it. How do they learn that? They think that their needs matter. They are they are told in a lot of ways that what they say is important, what they feel is important, and what they do is important. And it is. And we just need to tell our girls that too. And in so many different ways we don't. We ask them to be quiet. If they are too loud, it's not feminine. If they speak up a lot in class, it's too aggressive. I mean, I think there's so many ways that we tamp down our girls, especially as
1: they near puberty. And so what are some tools that you can share with us to give girls the sense that their needs do matter and that they should ask for what they want? Any any practice tips?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you simply write it down, like write down your question Figure out what you want and then figure out who can give it to you and write it down as a question. You don't actually have to ask for it that way, but once you see it written down as a question, it gives it validity. And so that's one of the exercises that,
1: that I have in the book. So it's almost like visualizing asking the question, which then gives you a sense of being able to? When
0: you write it down, it just becomes more real. So I ask people to write down Their big goals and their little goals. And once you write them down, yeah,
1: they become an entity with which you can interact. The book is targeted to young girls and teens. But I think that every female should read this book and go through the journaling exercises and all the things you recommend to become a braver human.
0: But I do specifically write it for girls for a very specific reason, which is that they are much more open to grasping bravery before they hit puberty. And once they hit puberty and the pressures to be pretty and liked and perfect hit, uh, then it's just a lot harder. But if you're adventurous before that, the thing about adventure is being pretty is – Impossible in the outdoors, pretty much. Irrelevant. Being perfect, also impossible. Mother Nature doesn't let you be perfect. And being like takes a complete second tier to being respected and being a good teammate.
1: Caroline Paul, thank you so much. Caroline Paul's wonderful new book is also a New York Times bestseller, and it is titled The Gutsy Girl, Escapades for Your Life of Epic Adventure. You can learn more about Caroline Paul on her website, carolinepaul.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published
1: exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.